Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the podcast today. I got a great one for you, really a world-class guest. When I say world-class, that is because this guy has fished and guided all over the world. Everywhere that I want to go, this guy has been. He's a complete savage. It is Yako Lucas, Captain Jack Productions. He's made some incredible films that you've seen in the Fly Fishing Film Festival, I'm sure. And we talk about all kinds of things like conservation, paying your dues, and the difference between Giant Trevally and Jack Crevel. Stay tuned. Here it comes. Yako Lucas. Hi there, my name is Yako Lucas, and uh, this is the Tom Rowland Podcast. Yako, how are you, man? Good in yourself, Tom. Man, good, good to be here. I'm doing so great. I'm really happy to talk to you. You're somebody that's been on the list for a long time. You're a savage, man. You're an absolute <laughs> beast, a savage. I know you from afar. I think we've met one time at ICAST very briefly, um, yep. but I'm a fan, man. I love what you're doing, and I think it's really cool, and I have a ton of questions. As a guide myself, I... I want to know how all this happened for you. Um, so let's start. Let's start back at the beginning. Um, how do you How do you get started just just fishing? And you're from South Africa, right? Yes, yeah. Born and raised in South Africa. Um, I mean, it's 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 one of those situations. Like I think so many of us have in common. You kind of get introduced to it by your father at a very early age, and I think it's that that time when it's either just going to become the best passion of your life or it's going to be nothing really you're interested in. I mean, it was a love, love at first, first bite kind of a thing. So uh, I just, I mean, my very early uh, things that I can remember was, was fishing in little ponds next to the beach while my dad's catching giant sharks and sitting in between a pile of his reels when I was a baby. So it was, it was always going to happen. And uh, 
you know, South Africans are, are, are pretty stubborn creatures and, uh, and, um, I was lucky enough to make a, make a living out of it, but, uh, definitely not, nothing happened that easy. I mean, it's a lot of hard work, but, uh, yeah, ended up, uh, uh, from just a passion to create a living out of it. Yeah. Well, that's, uh, that's often a very difficult transition to make a living. In my case, I had no idea that you could make a living as a fishing guide. I didn't know that that was something that you could do. And it wasn't until I was around some guys in Wyoming that were raising a family and doing some things, you know, they were a true professional fishing guide. And of course they only had about 120 days in the summer that they could fish and then they would be a snowmobile guide or something else, but they were guides. And that really opened my eyes to like, Oh, like this, this is a real job. This is something that you can do for a living. And that's when a lot of things changed for me. What about you? How did you kind of, was that a common thing? Did you know fishing guides when you were a kid or? So basically just a long story short, how it, everything happened is, is, um, look, I fished the whole time. Whenever I had a single opportunity in school, university and everything, I was always fishing and obviously loved it. Um, I was very fortunate. I was, it was like a meant to be situation. I, I wouldn't say that we were, were walking along the beach holding hands, but I met a guy <laughs> called Keith Rosinas, um, on a beach in East London. And he kind of looked at the strange thing and he'll, he'll probably admit to it. He looked pretty tatty at the stage when I met him and he just come back from a season in Russia guiding and guiding in Russia for a season, drinking a lot of vodka, spending day and night with the clients. <laughs> you'll look pretty bad when you come back. And he, I immediately just kind of saw, I think he had a, a fly fishing brand, branded shirt on whatever the brand was. And I, I immediately was like drawn to him, started talking to him and he explained the whole process of how he got it done. And I was still finishing my last year in university, and um, and I was so intrigued by it. Uh, like you said, that that there's actually a, a way to make a living out of it. I just wanted to finish my studies um, and uh, and just kind of do the right thing. And that's exactly what he said. I went to go work in a fly shop in London for a year. Kind of got to meet a lot of different people. And then literally a year later, I phoned him up, being very stubborn. I said to him, "Do you have a job available for me? What are you doing at the moment? Can I work with you? Can I work for you?" And uh, I think it was almost two weeks later, I was sitting in Cosmolito in the Seychelles guiding people into 373 GTs for a week. Wow. Um, I mean, it's like a baptism of fire. And, uh, and then it just continuously progressed from there. Like you said, some guides just have a specific season. Um, and and I, I immediately noticed that, I, that like a specific amount of time just wasn't enough for me. I just wanted to do more and more and see more places. So as soon as I finished the Seychelles season, I wanted to do something different. And I got to go to Norway and started guiding there and got to go to Mongolia. And at, at, at one stage for, a, for several years, I was doing 300, 320 days a year. And, but it was perfect for me because seeing different locations and, and really making a living out of it and being pretty responsible with the way that I do stuff, you know, you know as best as I do, to actually be able to own a home or make a living out of it. You got to be responsible. And yeah. cause you get what, what we call, you get guide rich where you just go, go and go crazy. Like, Oh, I've got all this cash and you just spend it on the stupidest things. Um, and, uh, and you have to go back to go guiding. So there I, I, I started being more responsible to at a very early age. So yeah, just very blessed still and uh, very happy. Well, I've looked, I looked before this trying to do a little research about all the different places that you've guided. And I came up with, I came up with a little bit of a list, but it seemed like the more I looked into it, I was like, oh, and he's been here too. And I I don't know if all of them were guiding or you were shooting some films there or, or what, but I mean, I saw Seychelles, Norway, Gabon, 
Is that yeah. someplace that you've yeah. been? Uh, yeah. Suriname, Bolivia, Africa, Mongolia, the Bahamas. Um, I know you've been in the Keys. Like yeah. that's that's a lot of places, man. And so, which of those places have you like spent professional time as a as a fishing guide, and which are more recreational? So uh, the ones I spent the most time guiding months and years on end was the Seychelles uh, was probably the main one um, and Norway, Mongolia, Russia, um, Bolivia. I also have spent quite a lot of time, not just well, guiding more, more doing films, being out there as a host. Um, so those are the main ones. And obviously Africa, I spent a lot of time in Africa guiding for tigerfish and yellowfish and all our indigenous fish. Um, but those were kind of the main ones. The rest of them, like Australia, Cuba, um, all those other crazy places that have been more trips. Um, yeah, just kind of hosted trips. Like hosted Exploring. Trips. Yeah. yeah. Um, some of them were sort of filming projects like Siberia and that stuff um, where, you know, where we just try and introduce somebody or the, the, the viewers to like a different fishery, whether they they're going to go there one day, whether anybody's going to go back there, that that's kind of the deal. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure to find some of these amazing places, you have to have found some really horrible places, uh, in your, in your, uh, explorations. I'd be interested to know, you know, it, you, you live a, a very romanticized life. It looks like anybody that would watch your films in the film festivals would be just like, man, that is what I want to <laughs> do. But I'm sure just knowing what I know about fishing and, and trying to get to the best spots, you often have to find a lot of the worst spots. Do you have any, um, any stories of, of exploration gone wrong? Look, I mean, it's exactly like you said it. It's, it's, it's <laughs> for the most part, it's, it's horrible until you get that dreamy few hours and it's amazing. But like I always say, when you see these romantic photos of the Seychelles, you don't see the camera guy sweating with one broken camera, <laughs> taking the actual photo with his iPhone or something that, because there's, there's always something along the way. Um, honestly, like, like from injury wise and all that kind of stuff, we've been, we've been really lucky, but I think every project that we head out to, for example, when we went to Siberia, we went there for, um, it was almost 20 days and, and we only had fishing, good fishing for two days. And we managed to capture those two, two days. And the rest of the time we caught egg roll, nothing. Um, it was nothing. We went to all these rivers that, that's supposedly amazing. And I think, they might be amazing. We just didn't understand them because I think those timing are, um, they run into a main river and then they come back to, to the smaller tributaries. And we just didn't have enough information on that. So, so you might see one of the, the, the film Yakutia and see this amazing drone shot of a time and eating a fly, but that was within the two days that we were actually catching fish. Um, and like you said, there's just always, always something that's gone wrong. And I, I, you know, if we could catch capture every moment on film that's happened there fishing wise also. I mean, there's so many times where you like look in trying to get the settings right and boof, the fish eats the fly and you don't have it on camera. I mean, it happens yeah. 90% of the time. So so there's just a lot of stuff in the in the background that I think a lot of people don't realize the hard work. And and the, the one thing I remember so well when we were fishing in South America is we had two great anglers but they never understood like from a filming perspective that if they, they, that doesn't help them being great rock star anglers 200 yards in front right. of us. If they can't make it happen right in front of us with the cameras rolling, it's useless. Right. So it's, it's a stop and go, stop and go. That's why also look at your shows and stuff. And you know, the funny thing is, is I would love to also have seen a behind the scene of location X because that move, that movie we binge watched. And that's kind of where I kind of, 
became one of your big fans watching that movie in the Seychelles on Farquhar Island with my guide friends. And we would watch it over and over and over <laughs> and over. I mean, it, that's what kept us sane. Like when it's tough days of fishing, we just go and watch uh, Location X. So, um, but yeah, I'm sure it wasn't as easy as what it looked like in the, in the fall. Oh, I don't know. It's pretty easy. I've never publicly, <laughs> never publicly said who the guide was on the back and I'm not going to do it now because that was my agreement, but I think everybody knows who it was. Um, yeah. but when you got him pushing you around in his home waters, he knows, he knows exactly what he's doing. And, and, uh, we, we found the fish, but that's a, that's a strange area because the bottom is so dark there that, if you don't have a white spot, you don't see them. I mean, you can say, yeah. oh, I can see fish better than most people and I'll see them. No. I mean, they are, yeah. it's black and the fish yeah. are black and you don't see them and uh, nobody sees them. And it's very, <laughs> very tough. But I mean, you know, and then you got the afternoon rainstorms every single day. I mean, it's always like that. And, you know, whether it's our TV show or or your films or whatever it is, there's a tremendous, the majority of the time it's not happening. And yes. then you yes. see what, what you, what the end result is, is like a 12 minute film or a 22 minute television show. It looks really good. And that's, yeah. that's our job. You know, we're, we're supposed yeah. to do that, but you're right. There's a lot of, there's a lot of, uh, of, of unproductive time, you know, in some cases I would be interested to know, like when you're saying 20 days of basically nothing and you have two days of really good, it seems like man, dealing like you're, you're also a coach. You're also yeah. a motivational speaker every morning, telling, telling, trying to keep the morale of the crew going. You're trying to, you know, tell people, okay, look, I know we haven't seen anything in 10 days, but today could be the day. Like, how did you yeah. deal with that? I, I mean, the, the lucky thing is, is that we kept on seeing new water. So the, the optimism I, I've been, I've been a group, big optimist my whole life, as I'm sure most guides are. Like you said, a guide becomes a psychologist, a teacher, a motivational speaker, everything in one little short bit. And, and you know, every time we saw some good water, um, I mean, without going down and saying, oh, it's not going to happen here, we just put the cameras up, get the drones up. This looks good. Get it up, get it up. So, so you end up with so much content that is useless. But, I mean, uh, I actually spoke to a friend of mine the other day that, that's busy filming on a project too and he said to me like you just have to non-stop be absolutely obsessed like i've reached the point now where i feel like if something doesn't get caught on camera like i feel let down like i feel i mean it's 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 great it's still a great moment but it's still for me not good enough until it's gotten captured so you kind of be, be, become super obsessed and that just means the cameras have to keep rolling inside another thing that happened in siberia is at that stage i wasn't 100% sure about lithium batteries I put several batteries with my drone and a hard case. We, we had it shipped over and got there. As soon as I got onto the ship, opened the case, there was no ba drones, drone batteries. Oh, Luckily, no. the, the guy that was great enough to take us with on the trip, his son just got a drone. So we managed to salvage three batteries from him. And I promise you, like the, the amount of time that that red light flashes that the batteries are down, but we just kept it up in the air is almost every time. But the moments happened and you just have to, you can, you become a rock star within seconds. So how did you, how did you kind of learn about filmmaking in this, in this kind of lifestyle? Because like a lot of things you're talking about were some of the hardest lessons that I had to learn. Like we were tournament fishermen moving into a television 
trying to make a television show. And the hardest thing for us was to slow way down instead of, you know, making three casts and moving on and, and there's nothing here, keep going. Well, the cameraman can't keep up with you. And so we had to learn the hard way through a lot of frustration from our crew that, like you were saying, if it doesn't happen right here, right now, in good light, it doesn't have, you could catch 50 200 yards away and it doesn't make any difference. We're not getting any of it and none of it's going to make, make the show. So we had to slow, we had to slow down so much. It was so difficult, but we were being coached by people who had made TV shows before wondering where you kind of learned all of that. So I I think the the thing where I learned it was just kind of the hard way sitting afterwards, trying to edit these home videos that I started (laughs) filming and just sitting and sifting through footage and, it's the most frustrating thing when you kind of sometimes see something good happening in the distance or you see something good happening and it's out of focus or something. So I, I, after a couple of years, I realized like it is so important to start focusing on the small things. And I, I was lucky, uh, a friend of mine, R.A. Biadi, filmed a project with us in Mongolia. And with him too, I kind of got coached a little bit in the sense of that um, these moments just you, you have to, as an angler, you're as responsible for the film as much as the filmmaker because you just have to get it done. So, um, like, I mean, sitting through sifting, so the little clip gangsters of the flat that, that we did a while back, um, like I said, I was at the time that uh, Tom By from the Drake emailed me asking me if I could do a little clip for the Drake Awards. I was guiding in Norway 18 hours a day, so I was almost sleeping nothing. So I was so excited about the opportunity getting something in the Drake that I started editing for two hours a night. I'd guide, edit two hours. Sometimes, I mean, I was standing next to my client sleeping probably, but um, (laughs) that's also where I realized like how um, just a few little clips can make something good and just it needs to be in focus, all those small little things. But that is sifting through hours and hours of footage. I think you also get the question a lot where people say, how many hours of film do you need to go through to to get actually the story that you end up? And I mean, it, it, it obviously becomes more less filming when you start directing stuff, more producing the stuff more, but usually it's, it's, it's hours that people don't see. That's all background stuff. Yeah, for sure. I mean, but then on occasion you go out there and you just, it's happening and nail and, it. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it can be so many times where it's not just nailing it. You can actually miss it very easily in my experience yeah. is, you know, it's the first day. Oh, this is going to be easy. You know, <laughs> like the fish are just doing whatever you're, you're wanting them to do. They're doing it. You're still working on camera settings. You know, uh, you're dealing with all of this stuff. It's all brand new and it lasts for an hour. And that's all you see in the entire trip. That yes. can be very difficult. I mean, that is, you know, filmmaking, showmaking, I find it, it, it's, it's the same as fishing and, and you would be crazy to think that it's always easy. It's not, it, it's difficult yeah. more times than not, I think. And just following up with that is, is just like the one thing I've realized if the opportunity comes, you roll it because like I said to you guys, no, no, we'll film that shot tomorrow or that sunset or that tomorrow. Never film it tomorrow. You film it now and get it done. Whether it takes a little bit of extra effort, you just got to get it done. Because mm-hmm. like, exactly like you said, one hour of craziness and it's done. Right. That might be all you yeah. get. Well, let's go yeah. back to let's go back to your first guiding um, opportunity, which is the Seychelles. So it yeah. sounds like, well, you were kind of a university student. You you get a little bit of of uh, information and an opportunity. And tell me about tell me about kind of 
sitting there with that opportunity in front of you, like sometimes people would say, oh, oh, well, that seems like a long way away. I'm not sure I'm ready for that and back out of that opportunity. But you jumped at that opportunity. Tell me about that kind of that moment where you where where things change for you right there. I just, I, I just, I'm, like I said, I'm a very OCD personality and I just always like very obsessed about stuff. And, and when I was working at the fly shop, I was already telling people that I was going to become a fishing guide and, yes. and all these things. So every time I was one ahead of what I wanted to do, I always say, fake it till you make it. If, if somebody asked me to do something, I say, sure, I can do it. And then I figure out how to do it. <laughs> so, so when that opportunity came up, I, I think I didn't know about enough about the Seychelles still. Like, I mean, I didn't realize the absolutely insane place that I was going to. I mean, we, I mean, get just blown away still thinking back on even now. I mean, every time I go out there, it's, it's crazy. So, um, I, it's weird. I never felt really intimidated about going, going there immediately. I was just, I just jumped on it and, and went for it all, all in. I remember the first time we got on the big mothership, we used to call it the animal's bum. It smelled so bad, the Indian Ocean Explorer. Um, I remember the first bed I slept, we had no portholes, so it was always dark when you, when, even when you got up in the morning, there's no sunlight or beautiful stuff coming through. We had this, I had the septic tank pipe right at my head where I was sleeping. <laughs> so <laughs> that is, and and then you've got all these guides that are insanely good guides from South Africa that's just making it everything look easy. And you're like, okay, I can do this. I can do that. I can do this. And, and, uh, yeah, you just, you just keep, keep getting just And, and like I said, none of this is, is as pretty as people think. Like I remember getting so seasick from the first time on that big mothership. It's, it was just, I felt so terrible, but once my feet, my foot got on the flats and I saw the first GT's eyeball out, hit the fly. I was like, okay, this, this is me. Yeah. And it was crazy seeing real smashed up. And just like those first weeks were just, baptism of fire so i mean the gt is is a really awesome fish and i want to talk to you more about exactly how awesome they are but you're you're kind of coming over from working in a fly shop in england what kind of fish had you caught before a gt that would even have you prepared at all for what you were about to see 300 and what'd you say 353 of them in that first season 373 gts first first week the first week, the first week, <laughs> week on the flat. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, you'd, you'd, I, I remember, sorry, I'll answer that. I remember my second day guiding. Um, so we didn't really, we get, got trained a little bit shadow training, but immediately you got, okay, here's your clients go and get some fish. And luckily we were at a fishery like that. I remember after the first session and the second day, my client called me and the head guide closer they had landed between three of them. They landed 20 GTs for the, for the session. And I remember him telling me that I would never going to be a successful guide because he didn't come here to catch 20 GTs in a session. And I'm so terrible and I needed to find them more fish. And I was just, I was like, I don't know what to do more for these guys. Like they just got, I had an insane session. And, and uh, I mean, I, I think that also got kicked my butt too. And just really made me realize like, I mean, I'm going to, I love showing people wrong. Like if they tell me I can't do something, I will show them that I can do it. And, and that's, that's the crazy stuff that happened. Like, I mean, people well, complaining about 20 GTs in a session. Where, I'd like to know where those guys had been fishing. Because if that's yeah. not impressive to them, then <laughs> let's go where they've been, you know? <laughs> Unfortunately, I, I have to say this. I mean, I, South Africa is in my heart, born and bred. I love South Africans, but we are the damn hardest clients to guide on this planet. We are the stubbornest, 
once you've done something one week, you have become a professional instantly and nobody can tell you what to do. Unfortunately, our personalities are too, we're too proud. We're too, we, we, we're not born in a culture of guiding. So I sympathize with them. That's okay. That's fine. But I'm, I'm here today, so I can't complain. Yeah. Well, um, now you are, so you have a tremendous amount of experience with, with the GT, uh, maybe more than anybody except Moana that in, in Christmas Island that I've ever yeah. spoken to. And you speak much better English than, than he did. <laughs> um, so now you're in Texas and you're, you're starting your guide service, which I want to talk about. I don't want to just jump ahead to starting that guide service. But what I do want to talk about is the fact that you're catching these really large Jack Crevels now. And yeah. I've seen them on your Instagram and you shared them with me. Um, I'd like to talk about the Jack Crevel versus the GT and what, what you think. Now that you have a good amount of experience with really large Jack Crevels, you have a tremendous amount of experience with GTs. How do you think that the two fish kind of compare to one another um, and, you know, fishing styles and all of that? So, you know, I, I honestly, I, so, so I'm busy also working on a project, uh, hopefully a, a good movie that will, will put a little bit more light also on Jack's. And, um, you know, honestly, I, I don't see any difference in the two. The only thing that I would say that, that the dream is that, that makes a GT maybe a little bit one step above and always to have that dream to go fish for a GT is the fact that you can fish in clear sandy flats for them and, and visually that aspect is hard to beat. I mean, when you're walking down a sand flat and you can see a GT for 300 yards away, there's, it's, it's pretty hard to beat that. But when it comes to how ferocious the, the demeanor, the attitude, the everything about a Jack is exactly the same as a GT. I mean, the, the, the way that they, the thing I love to see when they, they do these pack hunts or I I've had a, a few spots now on the Texas coast where I can, where I can quite regularly find them where they come into the shallows, exactly like a GT fin out, um, just cruising around looking for something to feed. They're a little bit harder to feed than a GT for the most part. You think um, the Jack Crevel's harder to feed? Those ones on the flats, the okay. ones that we find on the flats. And for some reason, they keyed in either if it's bigger mullet or something, and usually you're standing there with a redfish fly that's this big. <laughs> so they'll come and swing in and then phew, just swim away. It's just not enough for them. Uh -huh. but, uh, but I just think that attitude is exactly the same. And, and for some reason... I go to the dock every day and the guys, I go fuel up and the guys ask me like, what are you guys fishing for today? Cause they see the fly rod, the fly poles. And they, uh, <laughs> they, they, I tell them like, we've had a great session with the jacks and they can't fathom why we're trying to fish for these fish. So I don't know if there's still a culture and I know you've been fishing for them for the ages and there's been guys fishing for them for a lot, but I, I don't really understand where they've really got a bad rap because they do everything that we want in a fish. They aggressive, they fight really hard. For me, it's a blessing when I'm guiding and I start the morning off with a couple of jacks because my clients are tired already because they've been fighting fish for 25 minutes. They've had that visual aspect. They got just that craziness. And then you can kind of go to the flats and, and go fish for redfish that are tailing and stuff. So, I mean, I, I'd say also from, and you can catch jacks in so many different places in the world. You South America, mm -hmm. you can catch them on the West Coast of Africa. And there you get different kinds. You get the longfin jack, jack Revel, um, and uh, they still eat top water. And I, would, I don't know if, if it's just an observation I've made, but I think a jack, the dimensions, they're not as, as thick as a GT, but I definitely think that the tail seems bigger to me. So I don't know if you had to put them tail to tail and drag them around, then 
I don't know. Jack, Jack's got some, a lot of power to it. Yeah, they, they do. I kind of think that, uh, you know, I've, I've put this around my head a bunch because I don't really believe that there's a trash fish. And I think that if you're guiding, you know, 300 plus days a year, which I was doing and you were doing as well, you're going to come across a lot of days that are very difficult, very difficult. It's blowing 30. Your people want to go. You're not going to permit fish that day. Jacks are a day saver lots and lots of times. And, you know, people poo-poo them because they are very available. I think that's what yeah. it is. And and you can see it the same thing with with bluefish or or um I don't know, anything that's available. Anything that's easy is something that people don't want to catch for some reason. It's like a weird malfunction in some fishermen's heads like oh well they're too easy i don't want to catch those or they pull too hard like an amberjack like you go out yeah. and you you can catch a million amberjacks but they pull too hard and people don't want to catch those and reef donkeys you know they call them that yeah so i don't know it's like whatever is super available is not desirable and the jack crevel falls into that but when i go to christmas island or or uh even even in um and when i fished in australia um, the GT, especially in Christmas Island, I mean, if you caught a two pound GT, people would come back to camp and they would think that they caught a 400 pound tarpon, a, a 60 pound permit, whatever. It was like, we caught a GT. And I'm thinking, I, I just don't see that that's that big a deal. Like it's a very small fish. It's cool. It's a GT. That's, that's great. But you can go catch 200 Jack Crevels, four pounds in a day. I mean, seriously, yeah. in some places you can just, I mean, it's every cast. So I just never really understood why one is so celebrated and the other is, is so poo-pooed when they are almost the same fish. And I'm so glad to hear you say that. Now, let's talk about the differences because a Jack Crevel is only going to get to be, I don't know, I think I saw one in an aquarium one time that was about 60 pounds. I don't know how big they yeah. get. I don't know what the world record is. But a GT is a totally different fish when it comes to that, right? Like, what do you know about how big they get? Yeah, so, I mean, GTs get up to, um, I mean, they, they, so as I think with a lot of different fish, uh, there's different I don't know if it's, I mean, it's, it's probably true, but the different genetic strains of GT. So I've even seen a difference in GTs um, from one atoll to another in the Seychelles, um, where one would be a little bit slender, longer, um, and then at other places, they'll be a bit thicker, whether it's feeding patterns or amount of food or just the amount of GTs. But uh, I mean, the, the GTs, I mean, they get up to apparently up to 200 pounds. I got this amazing story when we were guiding in Mauritius, in St. Brandon's with a buddy of mine, Tim, and we had the island manager staying with us. And he told us about this, like, uh, um, uh, not a squid, uh, this octopus migration that comes mm. over the flats. And then there is just wow. a mass number of GTs. And I've personally seen a GT there that I would have saved would have been probably close to 80 kilos, which is uh, what, 170 pounds. Yeah. And, and they just become a different animal. They, they not the same color, not those light blue colors. They just, these like dark black, uh, black and brown. And just like, you can see that thing is old and worn torn and stuff. But, um, the way that they feed still is, is amazing to see a big GT feed compared to a small GT. It's just a different animal. Even when they come on the flats, they just slow calculated. They'll, they'll like, I just, when it, when a, when a hundred, hundred, 
100 uh, pound plus GT comes on the flats and feeds on a client's fly, I always tell them just to slow it down, let them catch up because they just like know what they want to eat and they just come up and then you stick them. I mean, but then you buckle up because that mm. thing is going to go a long way away. But that I think size, that's that's that attraction too. Um, I mean, in Gabon, the, the 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 jacks also, I mean, I've seen jacks up to 70 pounds too. So they, wow. they get pretty big, um, the long fin and the, the jack ravel. So they definitely get big and toe-to-toe. I've got a, a friend there, um, Arno, that guides for top and, and, and the guys from Tourette's. And they'll tell you, like, the, the jack fishing is just amazing. They, they really sought after there. And I'm I, sorry, I just have to come back to the bluefish too that you mentioned. If you had to show a South African the size of bluefish that people are catching in the U.S., they would go nuts. I mean, that's a fish that everybody wants to catch in South Africa. So again, it's that weird situation. And sorry, one last thing I just wanted to mention is just like, I get a lot of crazy comments on movies and stuff that I've done where people go like, Oh, I just promoting, I'm a trust fund baby and I'm promoting places. People can't fish and blah, blah, and all that stuff. That's fine. I mean, if I can do it, anybody can do it. But, um, like my idea is just to, to create, uh, uh something special for people and to for people to understand that this is really special and that's what i'm hoping to do with jacks too what i know they've been spoken about a lot but people can't complain about not having fifteen thousand dollars to go fish the seychelles and they've got jacks on their doorstep and and don't want to catch jacks just i mean don't be a fish knob brave anglers search for the one they call king but who will take his throne tune in to waypoint tv's battle for silver saturday may 18th from 12 to 6 p.m eastern presented by abyss battery waypoint tv right well i mean the jack Cravel, there there are some amazing things and i guess if you're if you're uh just fishing i i don't know with heavy tackle and maybe maybe they're not that much fun barracuda is another fish that that under the right circumstance can be one of the most exciting game fish ever under the wrong yep. circumstance. They can be a real pain in the ass when you're trying to kite <laughs> fish for sailfish and you've got this elaborate setup and some, you know, a couple of kudas come and snip off all your baits. Like, and then all of a sudden you get into a pack of sailfish and you don't have any bait that I can see why people don't like them for that situation. But when you come onto the flat, and you're able to fly fish for them or or even spin fish with with lures and they come out of the water and they're eating and they got teeth and they're super cool they fight hard you can catch a bunch of them it's a super fun fish to catch and i think that all of these fish under the right circumstance can be an incredible game fish for anyone like you just have to yeah. open your mind but like when we talk about the difference between jacks and and gt's when we start talking about a 200 pound fish versus a 50 pound fish. I get it. Like, yeah, <laughs> I, I see the difference there, but when you're talking about a, a 10 pound GT and a 10 pound Jack Crevel, I was, I mean, I caught one. The first one I caught was about 10 pounds and I thought, Oh, that's, that's about like a Jack Crevel. And then yeah. I thought, well, maybe that one didn't fight so good. And I caught another one and I was like, no, that's, that's pretty much like a Jack Crevel. And which was yeah. a good thing for me because I was no longer afraid of them. Like, yeah. you know, the first one I saw, my knees are knocking. I'm like, oh boy, <laughs> this is what I came all the way here for. And I throw over there and it acted exactly like a Jack Cravel. I was like, oh, I got this. Like, I, I know what, I, I know this game. This is, yeah. this is fine. Um, but I don't know. I, when we're talking, I haven't had the opportunity to go after hundred pound uh, GTs or I've, I've seen them, but I haven't had yeah. one eat yet. Uh, but anyway, they're, they're a great fish. I would love to see you do something really, really cool with a Jack Crevel because it's a, it's an underrated, underappreciated fish. 
that is, like you say, highly available. So that would be super cool. Yeah. The funny thing with the GTs too, what I've seen people do is even, even if somebody catch a 10 pound bluefin trevally, they'll put more emphasis on catching a 10 pound GT than the 10 pound bluefin. Right. It's, and it's still like, so anyway, we, it's, yeah, it's we, very we, similar to like the horse hijack, like the yeah. horse hijack does not get anywhere nearly as big as a Jack Cravel. But if you caught a 12, 15 pound Jack Cravel and you caught a 10 pound horse, eye, some people would be happier with the, with the 10 pound or the 14 pound Jack Cravel, which is a very mid sized fish where a 10 pound horse, eye, that's a real, that's a, a real bus bruiser you know yeah. that thing is awesome but i love i love the whole jack family i really do i think that they're yeah. i think they're custom made for anglers that like to catch stuff that fights hard i mean you know you take it out into the offshore and you got the amber jack and all the different almacos and everything you got out there and then you know all the way down to the blue runner man you take a kid fishing and you get in a school of blue runners man it is it's fun i don't know and then, i like and then and then you get the permit, which is the devil. Right. Yeah. But, <laughs> but, but even then, you know, I mean, you've got some great experience too. You fished in Australia, right? Yeah. Uh, it, to me, it was, it was, I, I've only done it once um, when we were doing glorious bastards and it was a complete eye opener on like, I feel Australia is that next lost frontier. The Australians have been trying to tell us about that fishery for ages, but uh, I don't know. For some reason also people kind of look past it. It's a long way to travel, but man, it, it is incredible. Where did you fish there? Where, what part of Australia were you in? So we fished, uh, basically up North. Uh, we, the last place we ended up was Gove. And then we jumped on a mothership and went to the vessel islands, which is a, a chain of islands. I'd say probably North East kind of North, uh, straight up. Um, uh, and it was just a chain of islands that we kind of, That's um, cool. Yeah, it was it was extremely cool, and the it was very untapped. We were very fortunate to go to the place. the 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 people do operations there now and take clients out, but we were fortunate enough to go there pretty early on and permit fishing. the The one thing that wasn't there as many of is, but it wasn't the right season because we went kind of winter time. Uh, we were focused on blue bastards and permit, but Wait, we what's did a get blue one bastard. Of, um, it's kind of like, I think, I think everybody describes almost, a, it doesn't look at all like a trigger fish, but it acts like a trigger fish. Okay. It basically tails up. It's got these fat lips. Um, oh, oh, I know what that, that's, uh, uh, like a, uh, what do they call that? Some sweet lips or, uh, yes, 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 yeah, yes. Yeah. That's correct. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I know what that is. Yeah. Yeah. So we fish for those incredibly fun to fish for, and then just masses amount of permit. And the cool thing about the vessels is there's two kinds of permit. There's the Anak and the Blocky, huh. uh, which we managed to get both of. And well, one of let, what's the difference between the two? So the Anak is uh, the Australians refer to them more, I believe, as the snub nose. So it's got a really pronounced nose okay. out. Uh -huh. um, uh, and then the Blocky is just a little bit shorter and stouter. I think I don't know if the the Anok potentially gets a little bit bigger. I think they're very similar in size, but they definitely the fins on an Anok is a little bit shorter on the on the on the back, and uh, it's 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 just a different different looking one and pretty cool. That Did you, you get notice that one was easier to catch than the other? Uh, they were they were being permanent. All of them, all of them were still permanent. They <laughs> yeah. exactly the same. That's the so one. That's the reason I went to Australia was to try to catch one of the permanent. I didn't know there were two species. That's this is the first I've I've heard of that actually. And we the I, maybe I did catch both. I don't know. I'd have to go back and look through the pictures, but some of them definitely had a much more pronounced nose and they didn't have the black as much as our fish in the, in Florida. Um, but I found them to be 
noticeably easier to catch than the Florida permit. Um, I think in the right situations, like, I mean, I, I think um, uh, that, I mean, because like usually in the Seychelles and those places, we chase them on foot. So they're very shallow and they kind of expose themselves to element elements. But I think the reason why I feel that they're a little bit easier to catch with, and I know Nathaniel's doing that a lot with permit fishing in, in Florida now, is that I just feel wade fishing for those kind of fish are just way better than, than skiffs. And I've, I've, I've kind of felt like I've been saying it a long time, just wade fishing for those fish and having your controlled environment within your area is so much better than having a skiff polling and somebody trying to stall you out so you have more shots at the fish. It's just it just feels like I'm I'm in my own controlled environment and you can move at the way that you want mm -hmm. to at the fish too. Um, they're still difficult, but uh, but yeah, I mean they we can feed them like in vessels. We were feeding those permit in Australia just like I couldn't believe like they would swim and just poof, smack it. And so, are you using the same type of flies that we use in the in the keys, or were you using something different? No, well, we we predominantly now just use the Alflexo. Um, I yeah. used to use a bunch of different ones too, but the Alflexo was just such a game changer. I I don't know necessarily what about it. It looks so buggy at, at when it lands in the water. Um, I mean, it, it's just been a complete game changer. We went in Alphonse Island in the Seychelles from maximum 15, 16 permit a season to like up to 60, 70 permit a season with the Alflexo. So that was kind of cracking the code hard on that so when that happens are do the guides start to get together i'm sure i mean this is the nature of guides and fishermen is okay now you crack the code a little bit you go from 15 or 16 to 60 or 70 then what's next like are you is there another evolution that comes after that that you're kind of noticing what about this fly is better than what we were using before and then i mean that's that seems to be the evolution of the, of of all fishing you know is yeah. like okay we've cracked something so we're doing yeah. something right now and let's look at all of these different factors and try to make it better and of course the next one is usually worse <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, you continue you continue to yeah. go back to what works you know <laughs> yeah exactly i think a lot of people are scared uh to try something new because of failure and I, I mean, honestly, I do sometimes too. And I put on a different fly and try something new. And like, I know I've got the right fly that I get a lot with in my pocket. I'm you're scared to change it over. But um, the one thing that we've been doing a lot with the Alflexo, the guys on the island, they've just been just tweaking those colors and just the fly has become so sparse. Like, I mean, it's, it's, mm. if, if I had to show you the Alflexo that I caught my last permit on, it's, the legs, the chenille legs are very, very fine pink, um, very little bit of pink dubbing. It's just like nothingness. And and those permit, I mean, their eyesight must be incredible just to find those flies. Because the last one I caught, literally, when he noticed the fly, he swam over and just, I mean, the fly was stuck way down its throat. Wow. And um, and uh, I think that the evolution now is, is just more the color, the color perfection. But then again, I mean, you know, most of the time you're fishing with clients and you can have the best fly in the world, but it still needs to land in the right spot. Right, right. Well, that's a, that's a big thing, you know, even with like a lot of the flies that are in, in popular in the Keys and you go back to the Dell Brown Merkin and some people just had a hard time throwing it. So if you can get something that's lighter, they're going to be able to present a much more accurate cast. It's going to be in the right spot and you're better off with a fly that doesn't really look as good 
that lands in the right spot because if it's 15 feet over this way, there's no, he's never going to see it. So, you know, you see evolution of flies going that way to where, you know, either they become smaller and easier to throw or like your fly, um, you know, maybe you catch two or three and you don't have time to change. Oh, here's another one. And next thing you know, you're, you're like, God, I don't know if I should throw this crappy looking fly because half the legs have been ripped off and the, you know, it's gotten so sparse and you throw it over there and they eat it like a champ. You're like, oh, well, maybe that's how I need to tie them. You know, I used to take a trout fly and put it on the ground and like grind it into the dirt and then then throw it out there. And sometimes that worked way better, you know, but uh, it's funny how the evolution of of flies happens like that. And I think a lot of it, which has also been mentioned a lot to me, the depth of the fly is just is just critical that I've that I've seen also with our permit, too, is that I'll, I'll very quickly have a client cast at a fish. And he might cast in the right position, but I can still see that fly floating up a little bit too high. And then he strips it in. He's like, okay, he didn't like that fly. I'm like, but he didn't ever saw it. Like it, it was too way up in the water column. Like I think people also don't realize like how in tune you need to be where your fly is. Your mind and your eyes need to be exactly where your fly is and mm-hmm. move it that way. The the last time I had a shot at like, so so I haven't caught an Atlantic permit, but that's hopefully going to change pretty soon. Um, sure going will. to Mexico next month. Oh, yeah. um, uh, but uh, I know the shot that I had the last time at permit, I had incredible shot with, I mean, it was like four fish feeding on a ray. It, it had to happen. It must have, it, I should have made it happen. But what I noticed is the fly that I had on just wasn't getting to the right depth and I got despondent and it just like, it just all fizzled out and I missed that opportunity. But I know that I just never got the flight to the right spot with those fish or they would have eaten. That's what I feel. Mm-hmm. Well, just don't be afraid of them. I mean, they're, <laughs> they're, people put them on a pedestal. They're, they're just a, they're just like your permit there. They're just like a Jack. They're just like a GT. I mean, you, you do it right and they're going to eat it. And a lot of them aren't going to do it right when you, when you put it in there. So, I mean, I don't know when, I think when people get scared of them, that, that tends to keep people from catching them more than anything. Cause yeah. it's a guy that can put a, put a fly into a teacup from 70 feet away like yourself. And all of a sudden, you know, the cast is everywhere and you've got <laughs> knots and your knees are knocking and it's like, look, just calm down. What if, what if you thought that was a bonefish? How would you cast yeah. to it? Like, just, oh. just throw it out there. You'll catch them. It'll be fine. Um, yeah. so the, uh, um, Wow. I don't know. I got, I got kind of, uh, excited about our permit conversation, but, uh, I, I love the permit. It's my favorite fish and, um, and, and they're awesome. But, um, let's talk about, um, you came to Texas and now you're living in Texas in Austin, right? Yeah. Uh, so we moved, uh, originally we went up to Massachusetts and I was doing some consulting work with Thomas and Thomas fly rods and then, uh, um, great bunch of people. And, but, I mean, the weather just like for us to have settled down in a place. And that was kind of the next thing is, is I said to everybody that I wanted to go live in the U.S. I wanted to have a skiff and I wanted to guide. I said this again, way before I came to the U.S. But, you know, for a South African to come to the U.S. is to actually end up living in the U.S. is also almost like near impossible. Well, now um, you, you say near impossible because of the, uh, the government requirements and the uh, visas and things like that or what? Yes, basically visa requirements to get a green card, to get all that stuff. I mean, you just have to also be very persistent and you you have to do all the right avenues. And um, I've, I get a lot of friends now that want to try and move to the US. It's just it's just looking through all the paperwork and everything that needs to happen. It's very difficult. And, um, and in a sense, I understand that because from a US point of view, 
if you're going to come and live in the U.S., you need to bring something to the party to make this economy grow. So, um, so you just need to bring your part. And, and luckily enough, I managed to get all the right paperwork and we got the green cards and now living in Austin uh, and it's a great place. And um, I spoke very early on also when I get, got to Austin, um, spoke to some of my friends, fellow Yeti ambassadors, JT, Panzant and Alvin and a whole bunch of guys about uh, guiding on the coast because I wanted to have a guiding job where I could be close to wife and our two dogs and mm -hmm. just have, have a normal. I think what most people don't realize is if you've got a job in the Seychelles and Mongolia and Norway, if you've got a girlfriend and she tells you that that's okay for you to be away six months, seven months, nine months of the year, she's lying. Very, it's you're in a honeymoon phase because that's not that's going to phase away. It's not going to work. Um, so, so I wanted I wanted to still be a guide because that's my favorite part of everything that I do. And uh, now I can do it. I can go drive down to 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 the place that I guide at, guide and come back. And if anything happens, I can be around. So yeah. that's that's kind of the perfect scenario. And. That's I awesome. really love what I do. So where were you living before you decided to move in that first Massachusetts move? Uh, we were in Greenfield, Massachusetts. No, before, uh, small before that. Oh, before that. Before that, I mean, I was just traveling. I was, uh, we were in South Africa. Um, that was our first move from South Africa. But for since I finished university, I mean, I was in South Africa maybe 30 days, 40 days a year. So um, why did you want to leave South, South Africa? You know, unfortunately, I mean, South Africa is a place that I always recommend a lot of people to go visit. It's a, it's a phenomenal, it's beautiful, great climate. People are fantastic. Um, it, the, the, the one thing that's very tough there, though, is, is there's a bit of crime. And for me to, to have my wife live on her own uh, when I'm traveling or something like that, it just wasn't feasible. We've had some bad experiences with families getting hurt and stuff through people just wanting to steal a cell phone, some basic stuff. And it's, it's you're living on the edge a little bit when you live there. and um, I have to say, though, the one thing, honestly, throughout everything that's happened in the U.S. at this current stage, I have to say it almost seems like South Africa is a little bit, little bit more ahead when it comes to making peace with everybody that's around you and all that kind of stuff. It's, 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 it's actually pretty far yeah. ahead with that. I mean, stuff. There's, there's a tremendous amount of, uh, of racial issues in South Africa. How, I was just kind of interested, and not to turn this into a political yeah. discussion, but you know, you've, you've lived through that. In, yeah. in South Africa, and and now you're seeing kind of what's going on in the United States. Is that is it kind of familiar? Do you see like, oh, I've already seen this before, or I mean, what what does it look like to you? I mean, it, it's it's pretty sad in all aspects to see it. I mean, we, I grew up through apartheid with my dad's in the police force, and my mom was a teacher, so you, I was very familiar and understood. I mean, I was still very young when all that stuff happened, but now that I look at it. I see that there's a lot of stuff that people do wrong, that people are, are I mean, we, people can be horrible human beings. And, and also uh, when all this stuff happened in the U S I, I, my wife and I spoke about it a lot because, you know, there's always two sides to a story and it's, you know, there, there still seems to be a lot of people doing a lot of bad things. And I honestly don't know where, how people are. I think it's going to be a long battle still ahead. I mean, anywhere in the world, I still think it's an issue anywhere in the world, racial issues, but, uh, um, it's, it's just bad to see when people do stuff like that. It's so, so nice. Every time I guide clients now, I just tell them like, we're going to go on the boat. We, 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 some subjects might come up, but the nice thing is, is being on the water is, is that all this stuff disappears. Like I yeah. don't think about the virus. I don't think about the, um, I mean, we always conscious of the virus cause we have to take all the precautions when you're guiding, but, uh, 
um, all this stuff just disappears. And then you realize like, there's actually a great world out there. And I'm I, like, I'm a pretty simple person. Right is right and wrong is wrong. Doesn't matter what color you are. Right. That's it. Yeah. Easy as that. Yeah. Uh, it almost seems like this move, you know, to Texas and getting started for you is, is almost like perfect timing because what do you, it, it, in terms of like this global lifestyle that you were living, you know, 300 days in all of these different locations, I, I see that definitely coming back um, at some point, like when there's a vaccine or something like that. But what, like when you talk to your friends that are on that kind of a schedule right now, is is everything just kind of on pause for that? Like very a lot of uncertainty as far as travel goes and, you know, headed to the Seychelles and Norway and all these different places that you were doing, what, if you were to be doing that right now, if that was your plan for this year, what would you, what would that look like with COVID? Yeah. I mean, basically every single guide friend that I have that still guides the Seychelles and Norway is shut down. They're all at home just wanting to be on the water. Um, but my friends in the Seychelles are trying to open the Seychelles again in September. And it, it seems like all the plans are going in the right direction. Um, I think the big thing was just going to be how to get the clients there because I think there are flights. It's just, you're going to be directed so much to different places, but it's very sad. That's why I just said to my wife the other day, we're so blessed. Like, I mean, I, you know, we get kind of mocked because we are taking the risk with the COVID and stuff guiding, but I mean, I'm still taking a hell of a lot of precautions, like sanitizing everything. And, and basically we, we stay at this place together we, we cook our own food, we go to the boat, we come back and it's literally groundhog day every day. We don't do anything outside the norm. We don't go to restaurants. We don't, we stay away from everybody else. So I'm still doing a lot of precautions, but I'm so blessed. And like you said, it could possibly be the luckiest or best move that I've ever done. Being able to even grow my guiding operation here on Texas coast better than what I ever would because everybody wants to fish and nobody can travel. So, right. um, so I've got something on my doorstep, the fishing's phenomenal, finding new great stuff every day that I can show my clients. So, you know, I wish, I wish, uh, I wish all the best to my guide friends. I think to think of them every day. I think the, the only thing that we've had had happened that stalled stuff for this amount of time was the thing when the pirates happened in 2009. And that, mm -hmm. that was the only thing that shut us our operations down for a little bit in the Seychelles, but this is pretty bad. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, uh, there's just so much uncertainty. I mean, it just might happen and might not. And so if you're a guide getting ready to go there for what, what, what's a normal Seychelles kind of session for a guide, like four months, six months. Uh, if you're on Alphonse, it's nine months, nine months. Nine months yeah. So, I mean, That's you could go there and no clients should, could, or, or people could show up for a couple of weeks and then Shut down, shut down or something. I don't know. And then there you are stuck in the Seychelles for, well, stuck in the Seychelles. I mean, that's <laughs> some, <laughs> well, in some it, way that sounds pretty good. But if you got a family back home, it's like, huh, I guess that could it, be. It's crazy. Like I've had friends now stuck there since they should have, they, well, they closed the season in March. They closed, no, maybe. Yeah. So they closed the season two months earlier this year. And I've had friends that have been stuck on that Island till today. Um, and it, it is, it is, like you said, it's kind of a, a weird scenario being stuck in the Seychelles. It sounds horrible. But when you've spent so much time on an island, you've scrubbed boats all day long, you haven't got clients, you can't really fish because the trade winds are blowing. And you, I mean, you get claustrophobic. I'm I mean, sure. it, it becomes tough. There's, there's got to be very few things to do there. And, you know, the, the fuel is for the customers and you know, yeah. not necessarily for you to be 
like going out and I, I guess there would be, you know, some advantages to sending the guides out to explore some new locations and stuff like that. But, uh, yeah, that could be, that could be really tough. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, let's change the subject a little bit. Uh, you're, you're fishing, uh, in Texas quite a bit now. And we talked about the similarities between the Jack Cravels and other fish that you fish for, like the GTs and the other Jacks. What about the redfish? Is there a fish that you fish for anywhere in the world that reminds you of a redfish or is, is does a redfish kind of do its own thing in your opinion? Um, honestly, I, I, I don't think, I think a redfish is very unique in its own way. Um, I, I can't recall anything that reminds me as much of it. Um, just they, I, I honestly really, really enjoy it. Again, I, I mean, they, they're so, so well known and throughout the US and I think a lot of people internationally now are getting more aware of them, but just uh they've got kind of such a funny attitude when they'll be cruising because they do such a different spectrum of stuff because so i i honestly say that i don't know everything about redfish but i know the bigger bull reds aren't really usually used to going to the flats i know in, in louisiana the guys or we fish for them in shallower water but it's still not super skinny water right. usually for the most part but um like you get the the fish in texas where they will go with their backs out and cruising out and and then you get the the bigger bull reds on the deeper water and there's all these cool things that happen and they they just seem very opportunistic when they i mean lots of fish are are driven by food and just the habits and everything that they do but uh but it just seems like you can do so many different ways of fishing for them in texas yeah. and i mean louisiana and everywhere um it's still it's still also funny like i honestly think the one thing that they don't get enough credit for, and this is the 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 meat, the, the slot size fish in Texas, is they're not as easy to catch as people give them out to be. I mean, all they need to do is see the fly, but they need to see the fly before they see the boat, and you need to get that thing right in front of him for him to eat it. So people can't understand sometimes or they're casting at this redfish and he's not eating, but it's mm. it's like a single bone fish. You need to have your stuff on point to get that fish. Yeah. So I, I love them. They're really cool. Yeah, they are. Um you know, they can be very, very difficult. In fact, I've yeah. encountered some redfish that I would put up there as far more difficult than permit. I mean, very, nice. very, very difficult. And if you go fish the West coast of Florida, where, and when, when I was doing this and these fish that I'm talking about is when the mullet net boats were still around and they would run the shorelines all the time. And you, we would find some fish that, uh, were in ultra clear water, very, very shallow. And man, those things, if you moved your rod, they were gone and they were so spooky, so spooky. And here we come, we're coming up there from the keys, permit fishing all the time, bone fishing all the time. And we're like, why these things are way harder than bone fishing permit. I mean, they can be, if they get a lot of pressure, the redfish can be incredibly hard. The redfish can also be one of the easiest fish to catch in the ocean. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's an interesting fish, but I asked that question because when I went to, I had the opportunity to go to Australia with one of our mutual friends, Fitz Coker. We went down yeah. there with him and, uh, and his family. And it was an amazing trip. We caught so many different species of fish and almost every single one, I would be like, Oh, that's like, you know, like we'd catch yeah. the barramundi yeah. and I'd go, Oh, they're kind of act like snook. I, so, okay. Like the barramundi, I would just make this little comparison in my head. Oh, that's a snook. Okay. Then there's the oxeye herring. Oh, those are baby tarpon. Okay. Yeah. Then there's, then there's the permit. Well, they're, they're like permit. And then there were all these different <laughs> fish, right? And each one I would be like, Oh, well, that's really similar to the way that this fish that, that we're familiar with acts, but I didn't come across anything that, that I thought, Oh, that's kind of like a redfish. Like a redfish was 
was interesting. The only fish that I that I'd caught down there that was exactly like the fish that we have in Florida was the cobia. And the cobia was oh. it was dead yeah. on. I mean, I looked that fish over up and down and I'm like, this there's no difference. Like you look at those permit and they had a different nose or their colorations yeah. were different or their fins are a little shorter. But the cobia, like this is this is the same fish. This is the same fish that fishes that we fish for in the Atlantic. But I couldn't find that about anything else. Like we had this Spanish mackerel that they liked, which was really similar to a Wahoo. Um, and, uh, I don't know. It was just every single one, but none, none of them reminded me of redfish. I was just kind of wondering if you, there was a mystery fish that I didn't know about that you, you fish for that maybe kind of reminds you of reds. No, I I think that is exactly right. I also, when I go to a fishery, I always like, you don't compare the fish or anything, but there's always like this one fish you go like, okay, that's why I, I said the blue bastards are so similar to trigger fish, just the demeanor and the attitude they don't look at all alike, but their attitude's exactly the same. But I, I haven't found anything that kind of does the same or acts the same as a redfish. Definitely, mm. it's a very unique species. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah. Some of the stuff they do, they 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 definitely smarter than people. Also, give them credit for. Like yeah. you said, when they when they can be smart, I think like in Texas, I don't know. And and it's funny that you mentioned about like some of the boats driving up and down there. And, you know, I, I don't feel like I've got any foot to stand on yet because I'm so new to the fishery. But I think some of those fish that have got PhD that really tough to catch are purely because of boat traffic. I don't think there's anything else that really puts pressure on them as much as the boats that's just driving up and down over them. Yeah, well, they can be super tough. That's a <laughs> really nice transition to uh, my next question for you. And that is that you've been in so many different places, either as a host or an angler or a guide. And now you're moving into a new area. Tell me about your idea of paying dues. Oh, uh, <laughs> I, I've, I've had some emails where guys just become on how quickly you, you just uh, have to do uh, how, how I can do what you do. But so I've been guiding the Texas coast almost two years now, and I would still consider myself a complete rookie and newbie. Um, so, and you know, again, that's the other thing is, is I think people need to understand if they're going to get a job in the Seychelles, they're not going to go and become an Instagram rock star and suddenly catch all the GTs and lift up fish. And it's, it doesn't work that way. You're going to be scrubbing boats. You're going to be somebody's like, uh, like assistant, or you're not, you're not going to, it's, you just don't, don't jump things that way. And the thing that I wanted to do in Texas is because I know it's a different kind of ball game. It's not really a team game guiding on a skiff out in a place. It's, you can become friends with people and definitely, uh, and, and do that, but it's definitely not like I'm trying to, if, if my clients had a bad day, I know in the Seychelles that my fellow guide tomorrow is going to give them a super cool day and we can change through clients like that. It's a different ball game in Texas. And, and, uh, you know, there are some older guides that are out there that I'll still make sure that I show a lot of respect to, um, some of them a little bit grumpy and some of them have been fantastic and welcoming and it's, I don't know, maybe if it's because of the accent and stuff like that, but they, I've been very welcomed there in Texas where I'm guiding. Um, but again, I, I've been staying out of people's way. Some of the older guys don't even know I was around, which is fantastic because I'm just kind of keeping a low, low profile. And, um, but I still feel that I need to make sure that I respect all the guides and I need to earn their respect. Um, and, and that's just kind of how you have to cut your teeth. And there's a lot of stuff that you learn out of a fishery like Texas where um, it's a different kind of water. There's a lot of, lot of water to get to know shallow water. You're going to knock out a lower unit at some point. You're going to go over an oyster bed. Um, you're going to, I had an incident with a guy pretty recently where 
he felt like I was fishing close to his spot. Maybe I was, maybe I wasn't. But I mean, he was definitely been around longer than I have. And I just had to apologize and suck it up. And um, and that's what it is. I, I'm just kind of, you, you have to earn your way and you have to respect the people that's done it before you. There's no other way. Yeah. So when you're kind of, you're, you're in the Seychelles, you've been doing that for a while. You're kind of, you, you turn into a very popular guy there and you move to someplace like, like Norway or I don't know, wherever you, Mongolia or wherever you're going to go next. Does that, um, does that start all over again? Like now here you are making sandwiches and, and scrubbing boats and, and you're the one getting up and getting everything ready for the older guys. Like, is that, is that a, I think I know the answer here, but I think it's very important for people to, to understand a lot of people listen to this podcast that are thinking about getting into the guiding business. And I, I don't I don't ever like for there to be any kind of mis misunderstanding about paying dues. And so like for somebody like you, that's like a, a rock star in a certain location, and then you move to another location and you walk in there, like you're a rock star. How is that going to play in another location? Yeah. No, I mean, you're going to get cut down short pretty quickly. I mean, you're going to be, I think you're going to be immediately hated if you think you're a rock star when you're a rock star at any place for the first time. And, and you're going to, the, the key thing and social social media has been has had so many good elements to it for the fly fishing perspective, but also um, again, like you said, people see all the good times. They don't even see any of the bad times, which is the majority of the times. And and um, and not, none of it is a very a guiding job. Is a very uh, you're the unsung hero, and you kind of still have to. I, I believe you always have to stay humble. Humble, humble, humble is the number one word. And and. I know that I'm a Ricky on Texas, whether or not I've guided people into thousands of GTs or, or time and or massive or all that kind of stuff. I know that there's a bunch of guys that spent a lot of time out there and I need to show them respect. And if I have to cook them a sandwich or make them a sandwich to, to, to go out with them on the water or just really, you, you have to, you have to understand, you have to respect the people that have been there before you. So yes, I mean, 100%, you become the rookie wherever you go, every time you go to a new place. And if you're going to come with an attitude, and I've seen that in the Seychelles, guys don't last very long. Yeah. You're either a team player and you you start doing what you do and you shut up um, and you work hard. That's the only way you're going to cut it anyway. Yeah. Great advice, man. I, I, I thought that's what you were going to say, um, but I, I was hoping that's what you were going to say. One of the things in, in the little bit of research that I was able to do for this interview, um, one of the places it... it, it ask you who your heroes were. And there were a couple of very familiar names. And then there was another name that was not very familiar to a lot of people. Um, Dale Perez and wondering yeah. what your, what your connection to Dale Perez is because he's, I, I know Dale Perez as a, as a Florida Keys fishing guide, outstanding fishing guide, just kind of thought that was interesting that you, you put him on there. I think, I think the reason for it is, is I, the first time I met Dale um, and the first time I actually saw him was on a photo with the absolute ginormous permit up at the TNT uh, factory where he was holding this. I mean, I don't even know how, but it was huge. Um, and the first time that I met him, I was one at one of the fishing shows. Cause I mean, I, I again, with, uh, with the, uh, just wanting to be in the industry and being to do so much. I, I used to go to from a very early age to the ICAST shows. Um, and I think my first one, was actually one in 2013 in Vegas, uh, which was, yeah, that was crazy. But um, I think 
I, I think it must have been at that show or the next one. The first time I met Dale, he was literally sitting, chilling, because Nautilus always has these, uh, you know, Kristen has these comfortable couches at the booth and everything, very relaxed. And Dale was sitting there and um, he just looked so relaxed and I introduced myself to him. And the thing that I like about him, he was so humble. And afterwards, uh, Kristen told me like, dude, I kind of gave me a little bit more info on da- on, on him. And I was completely blown away. Like for somebody to be so humble and have such an insanely cool background, I love that. That's just so amazing. Yeah. Really enjoyed that. He's done and then just of kind stuff. of kept in touch. He's he's also one of those people, like, I mean, I'll send an email and I mean, he'll always reply to the email. And, and when I do something, he's like, well done, get go, get after it. And I know a lot of people are busy. For, for people to go out of their way and do that means a lot. I love to hear that. Like, you know, to see uh, someone being a, a a quiet cheerleader. You know, of yeah. like, yeah, I like what you're doing. That's really cool because, you know, in today's world, a lot of people don't do that. So kudos to Dale for, for doing that for sure. And, um, that's really cool. I, I thought that was, I, I picked that one out and I was like, that's cool. Cause Dale, Dale and I used to put in at Sugarloaf a lot at the same time. Okay. And I would be like, I want to see where that guy's going, but I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't follow him, you know, because yeah. he's smarter than that. So I had to let him go and then hope I could follow a bubble trail somewhere, you know, but yeah. I, never, I never really could, but he's, he's, the, he's the real deal for sure. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's, I think, I think what I've realized a lot too, is it's, it's very often, I wouldn't say with a, with a, with the older generation of guys that you just find a lot of the time, if you go, go and take time to get to know them or meet them, a lot of them are really, really nice people. And they are all pre social media, Instagram and all that kind of stuff. I mean, all of us without the risk of sounding like a boomer is, is we all did a lot of stuff before Instagram or Facebook was a thing. Um, and, and I think, once that kicked in, it helped a little bit promote and got to meet people and you familiarize yourself with people. But I mean, again, a lot of people have done some pretty spectacular stuff. I saw a post that um, uh, Dan Blanton did uh, on Facebook the other day of top and he was catching in Costa Rica in the seventies at a place on the Rio Colorado that I was like, man, did they already fish there by then? And we think we're like three years ago, we started fishing. They were like, Oh, it's so awesome. Those guys fished there in the seventies. Oh, we, we did nothing. Dan, Dan Blanton, Stu apt lefty cray. I mean, flip pallet on and on and on down the line, Steve Huff and all of the greats have done things that we can't even imagine. Literally. Yeah. If they tried to explain it to us, we would be like, no, I don't, I've never seen that before. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, you know, the fishing, you know, the, you, I used to talk to Ralph Delph about, about things that would happen in, in the, in the keys. And, and I didn't talk to Ralph a lot, but he would just say, you know, we'd go out there to those wrecks and there would just be, you know, he would start to explain this. I'm like, I've never seen that. Like not even <laughs> close. He's like, no, no, probably never going to see it again either. Um, oh. But just, just amazing things. But I mean, you can, you can see, couple of different types of people like uh like uh robert trossett or somebody like that who has 238 world records he's seen all of that great fishing that that you know we're talking about that's you know from the from the back in the day yeah and so you can either be like it's not as good as it used to be and lose all your all of your enthusiasm for fishing or you can be like well they don't hang out there anymore and there aren't as many of them as there once were 
but they're doing something really cool over here and keep looking. Yeah. And like, I, I got a lot of respect for him because he seems to, he seems to be doing that and keeping a real positive outlook about, you know, it's not as yeah. good as it used to be, but it's still pretty good. And, and that's uh, all, that's all we can do. That's our outlook. I, I really enjoyed the, some of the, um, some of the stuff you've been sharing on your storyline on Instagram about people being so, uh, so chuffed with them, you following them on, on social media. It just, it just so nice to see that people see you as an example and hopefully we can just continue getting young people excited about it. And that's been my 100% outlook from the beginning. That's why, I mean, I've, I've been, I've been called the flat cap guy in Mongolia. I've been called this <laughs> and that. And it's just because I'm trying to speak to an audience that can make us still grow the industry that's yeah. it because we i don't want to seem elitist and make it die away why why is that important to you i i mean it's 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 important because i i've got such i've been lucky enough to make a living out of this sport but i want to see other people get excited just as much as i do that's why when we do those movies or we do anything it's to create that little bit of a dream and it's nice to see some stuff pop up in social media where you've got kids reaching out, like, how can I do this? How can I do that? Because then at least you see, you make some sort of a difference where it's one person or several per people. But the one thing that I find very important is just to make sure that again, we, there's no, not such thing as celebrities in fly fishing industry and people that think they've got, they've got fame or anything. I think that's the, I, I don't think there's anything like that in fishing. I think we've all such like-minded people, but we just want to share our passion and, if we can make a change in one person's life, I, I always try and follow inspirational people. I've even tried to do a lot of exercise since all the stuff that I've seen you doing, but I can keep up with nothing <laughs> and none of that. Well, one day we'll we can go together. and do a training season for sure. Um, but yeah, it's all that stuff. And I think um, if we can keep making an impact and speak, sometimes a flat cap might not look good on me, but if a young kid sees a, a, a cool fishing logo on a cap and it, it speaks to him, and you'll love it, then kudos to him, then, then that's, that's the way, that's the thing we do. But the one key thing is I always tell the young guys is to still respect the guys that have done it before them. That's the key thing. Just show respect and be humble and then enjoy the sport and yeah. work your ass off. Yeah, for sure. And then, you know, take care of the places that, that we love. I mean, that's, that's yeah. like, as I see, you know, getting kids into the sport, it's like that kid, if, if, if people aren't into the sport, and it could be hunting or it could be fishing. It could be backpacking. If you're not into it and going into these remote locations and appreciating what's there, then why, why would anybody want to save it? Why would anybody want to keep this put aside? Like you have to continue to bring those people in so that they, they can appreciate it, enjoy it and protect it. And yeah. um, that was one of the other questions I wanted to ask you too, of all the places that you've been which do you see as the most delicate, the most fragile? Um, look, I mean, the, the earth is a very fragile place. <laughs> and I think we don't realize our impact everywhere we go. I always like to tell my clients, I think the human race is the biggest plague on earth. We just don't realize <laughs> it. But, um, um, you know, if you look at the Seychelles um, and you go to an island called Goulette Island, BBC filmed those GTs feeding on the birds oh, there yeah. on this I island. I love that. That's if, so if cool. You, it's the most insane thing that you would witness. I mean, it is, we, it, it took us some time to understand what was going on when we found it. But if you go to the ocean side of that Island, it's got about three foot of flip flip flops, razor blades, tooth, toothbrushes. It has got plastic up to as high as your leg. 
Um, and people don't see that, but um, I mean, these beautiful islands getting covered in plastic and flip-flops and stuff. And and um, uh, the the guys that are, are working there now, are, I mean, they're doing everything they can. They go they go do these cleanups on the beaches as much as they can, but it's it's still like, I mean, you 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 have to make your little bit of difference. I, I love what Carter Andrews is doing now too with the one piece a day and yeah. we all getting into it and we pick up our little piece every day and that's the only way we're going to make a difference. But um, those places we we are just tearing the earth apart. And um, even a place like Mongolia, the one thing I love to see is, is it is a super fragile system. I mean, there's so few time and around the water changes. If they start mining in these areas, they they've been doing a lot of the same as like the, the Bristol Bay stuff. These guys want to build these mines above the watersheds and all sorts of stuff. And, and those fish are the, the most fragile fish that you can possibly imagine. So, um, but the other thing that we do see a lot of is the Mongolians get into their what they have. So um, it's beautiful to see when people are fighting back and, and trying to save stuff. But I think people just, every people just have to realize, like, if you walk past a piece of plastic, just, I mean, anything, you can make just your little bit of difference. It'll make a, a in the bigger scheme. So I think a lot of people would walk past that piece of plastic and think, if I just pick that piece up, it's not going to make any difference. So anything, and just remember, like that garbage gets gets washed to a beautiful place like the Seychelles, and uh, and it's an it makes a massive impact. Yeah. So, you think Mongolia over the Seychelles is the most fragile? Yeah, I think at the moment Mongolia is definitely very fragile. But they've instituted like single barbless hooks when we fly fish. You can only fish at our watershed for four five weeks a season. Um, it's actually going to get rested this year because all the Mongolian seasons that I know of, all the, all the, well, there's two operations and they've all been can't, uh, stopped for the season because of the virus. Mongolia's locked down. Um, so maybe they get a bit of rest. But the one thing that is amazing is, is that the Mongolians are really, because they see the water as very important and the fish that are in there. So they, they're really trying to look after it now and they're protecting it well. I mean, mm-hmm. to the point where the, the one season, uh, so I'm, I was the head guide at the upper camp and I've got a Mongolian guide that's the Mongolian head guide and he, he's in charge of everything. He helped me with everything Ghana. And we had somebody camp downriver that we weren't familiar with, but it would look very like glamping. Um, we saw a guy fishing with a spin fishing, fishing and treble hooks. I told Ghana about it. He ran down and before he even knew who it was, he started screaming and shouting and got them out of the river and only a couple minutes, couple minutes into it, they told him that this is the former president, and that just shows you the passion that they have. That they'll start screaming at his former president about fishing with a treble hook on a river just to protect what he has. Right. I wonder if that's the best approach. You know, like uh, they <laughs> start ended screaming up, and shouting before you before you explain what's going on. And I don't. I don't Mon- know. Mongolians are very passionate people, so they can. I mean, they badass wrestlers too. So I yeah. wouldn't want to get into a fight right with on. any of them. Um, yeah, so I mean, it it ended up the whole thing ended up him actually overnighting with the president and explaining everything to him. So he went in pretty aggressive. The one thing I saw in a place like Texas, so a few weeks back, I mean, I was releasing uh, bull reds that uh, that some of the boats were just releasing and not making sure that they were released well. I probably released about ten of them with my clients, and um, you can't get aggressive with those people because I feel like they don't know any better. So. With, even with a Texan, you have to have a very a much more of a cautious approach. And especially when they hear a foreign voice. Right. Then just explain to them. And what I've said to my clients is you need to understand if you meet a lot of these people at the dock, 
they would probably be the nicest people you'd ever meet. They just not been in that. They don't have that understanding. So um, it's a step by step in all places. Texas is a much slower process. Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience. Brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts. Every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment. Yeah. Um, you know, one thing that I just thought of while you were talking about the um, the shutdown in Mongolia. I'd be interested to hear what you have to say about this because I've never really thought about it quite like this. When I, when I did a podcast with Robert Trossett, who we talked about earlier, he was talking about how it seems like the earth is getting kind of a global reset. Like, yeah. you know, there's a lot where there is generally a lot of fishing pressure. There ha- there was none for a long time. Uh, now it's kind of coming back. Um, but places like that that are shut down, you know, the fish, the, the land is getting rested for sure, which has yeah. got to be a good thing. But one of the things that is probably the most important thing for conservation is that there is an economic benefit from that resource, whether that's fishing or having the waters be, be clear and healthy and, 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 and everything, all the wildlife being happy, tourists want to come. I wonder how that, what do you think about if that is no longer a viable economic resource because tourists can't get there does that mean that the the mines or whatever is has a better chance of being voted upon or or i don't know in some of these places there's probably not voting upon it's like well we're not making money from the tourists so we're going to have to make money from this i never thought about that that you know i've always been thinking well this is a good time you know the the land is healing the fish are resting it's going to be great next year but i don't know how long this is going to go on I mean, it's an extremely valid point. I mean, I mean, you can kind of look at the same way of uh, of uh, not with the mining wise, but like professional hunters and stuff. If if those dollars aren't coming in for people hunting big game, then they will just get poached out. Right. And now, like, I don't know how many people are traveling for hunting and that stuff. Well, that's got the same impact. But it's a very good point because, I mean, I wonder if that's also why they're still doing a harder push now for the whole Bristol Bay thing. Is it because there seems to be less people hmm. benefiting? I don't, I don't know. It's a very good wow. good example because yeah. that's that's the one thing that took us the longest in the Seychelles to do is to explain to the Seychelles government that the value of a GT is higher for a, for fly fishermen to come in there than actually commercially catching them and eating them. And we even saw, um, it just shows you our footprints too is, the Seychelles is still spectacular every day. We look after it really well. It's getting managed really well. But so in 2009 was the whole thing when the pirates came and our boat got taken. Uh, luckily, we managed to get away with our clients, um, but it was shut down for uh, X amount of time, especially one of the atolls that was only reachable by mothership. And six years later, that place was insane. Like in our little footprint that we did of two or three years, definitely had some kind of fishing pressure impact on that area, although it was so small. So, um, fishing is going to be insane in places, but you never know when the Seychelles go, okay, well, you can't get any tourists. We need to kill fish again. Right. So it's a good point. Yeah. I never thought about it. I mean, I really, it seems like something that I should have thought about, but I was just so happy that like some of these places were getting a rest and the pressure was off and it's like, oh, it's going to be amazing next year, you know, or, or whenever we can go back. But I don't know. I guess that's always something to keep in mind is like, 
um, as a as someone who is interested in preserving places and conservation is that I don't know when it all started making sense to me is really through the work of Captains for Clean Water, where yeah. they really were educating the public on the economic value of clean water. And then you have people that are non-fish. I mean, there's only so many fishermen, right? I mean, yeah. and, and we can only do so much, but when you start to get realtors and restaurant owners and, and, and um, you know, uh, amusement park owners, like the reason that they're coming to your amusement park is because it's near the water. They're going to go spend a couple of days on the beach. They're going to go to yeah. your amusement park. They're going to go fishing. They're going to, they, they want to, you know, smell the nice smelling surf. They don't want dead fish on the beach, you know, or they're not going to come back. There's a lot of other places they could go. And all of a sudden the economic value of clean water really starts to register with people that might not have thought about it that much before. And they did. I I think that that's one of the things that they've been the best about is, is making that connection with people that otherwise, you know, I don't want to say that they wouldn't care, but otherwise wouldn't be, maybe they, they wouldn't vote for water. You know? Yeah, because I mean, I think we take stuff extremely easy for granted. I mean, everything that that comes easy and, and we just kind of assume needs to be there. I mean, if somebody shut the internet down now, we wouldn't have internet and we wouldn't be able to talk and it'd be frustrating and I can't do. So all that small things, um, we just kind of think, okay, well, it, it should be this way. The water should be clean. And I, I take my hat off to the captain's clean water. I mean, it's I know it's a dirty job that nobody wants to do, but, and it's, it's not like you, you're always promoting this. Uh, I always, with the fly fishing stuff, with the fishing stuff, I always try and promote positive messages, but mm-hmm. sometimes you have to dig a little bit of dirt out and just people have to realize stuff isn't always dreamy. Yeah. But I, that's another thing that, that really drew me to that organization is that, you know, you have some other people that are being ineffective by pointing fingers, yelling. I mean, they're, they're so upset. They're, Things, their livelihood is being taken away, understandably upset, but pointing fingers, yelling, screaming, it's not accomplishing much in a lot of cases. In some cases, I'm sure it did accomplish something, but in a lot of cases, it's not accomplishing something. To remain positive, to show people how good it can be, to show people like this is where we're going, there's a plan, all we need to do is kind of vote on it. I don't know. I thought that that was really, really good for them. And they've, they've just stayed super positive, you know, the whole yeah. time. And, and it's nothing, you know, it's, it's certainly any of these conservation issues, any of us would yeah. rather, rather live in a perfect world where that's not a, you know, it's <laughs> nothing's the, the ever going to happen to this area, but. Exactly. And the, the funny thing that happened with me, um, sorry to barge in there, but, uh, it's with this, with, when I was releasing those bulls, um, is that what I noticed is that the guys were, that were releasing them, eventually noticed that I was spending time with my clients to try and revive these fish and get them back, which we did. You could eventually see them like with two of those captains. Now I've been communicating with super nice guys and they eventually kind of seemed embarrassed that somebody's just picking up stuff behind them. And eventually towards the latter part of the day, when we were still getting more bulls, you could see them actually driving over and spending more time with the fish instead of landing, throwing back and going for the next one. And I didn't have to say a word. I, we only started communicating afterwards a little bit later and you could see there was some kind of just a little bit embarrassed in front of their clients that they not doing the right thing. So I mean, all it, all it takes, again, you put a financial economic kind of thing on that and their clients are like, you're just going to let that fish float away and die. 
And then, then you're kind of the wheel, you see the wheels turning, like this guy's not coming back to me unless I do something a little bit different. And some people don't care, but I mean, maybe one person does. And then, then all of a sudden the guy's like, Oh, I'm not going to make the thousand dollars next time or $500 or whatever it is. And so all of a sudden you put that kind of economic, you hit them, hit, hit them in their wallet. And all of a sudden some people pay a lot more attention. All right. Well, listen, man, I've got two questions for you. Um, and I just want to tell you, I really appreciate your time. Uh, I know for one thing, uh, you're, you're dealing with hurricane Hannah right now. (laughs) And some of the, some of the, uh, implications of that to, to put a, a date on this, uh, Hannah is probably, where is it in relation to you right now? So we, um, so I was in, I, I came back to Austin, but it came really close to Port O'Connor and uh, um, Corpus Christi. And that's sort of kind of like exactly right. where we guide out of Port uh, Andes. It seemed to be okay. There was quite a few storm surges and stuff that came around. Um, everything seems to be okay. Uh, luckily, I mean, there'll be minor damages. There was some flooding, but uh, I think Corpus probably got a little bit worse. Did it come, um, on, did it come on land as a category one? Um, I, we, they said it was going to sort of come towards our way. Houston also got hit pretty bad, but everything that we got inland was just a little bit of rain. It was minimal. So I think it kind of fizzled out. I don't know exactly. I haven't been uh, tracking it since it's gone through the area that I've got as much. Um, but I know there was another, isn't there another one that's developed close to Hawaii? I don't know. I, I I really don't know. Um, I, I pay attention to that one because I was I was getting in in Florida we were getting much of the the effects. I mean it wasn't really yeah. that but it was pulling this this moisture up and it was blowing 30 and it was really yeah. tough. And so I started looking into it and I was like what is why is this happening? And it just continues to happen and then I noticed that it's named exactly the name of my daughter H A N N A which a lot of Hannah's do H A N N A H Right. Yes, and that's so right. That's right. The hurricane is named like my daughter without the final H. So, I but it wasn't too destructive. It more, so. I started watching it more closely. I was like, "Oh, <laughs> hey, check this out, Hannah." Um, and she thought that was, I don't know, somehow it was cool. And then her dad was pointing it out, so maybe it wasn't cool. Uh, anyway, <laughs> it lost the appeal. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Um, so anyway, good luck with good luck with that. I hope everything's good Thank with you. your with your fishery and certainly with. Uh, Port O'Connor. I love that. Uh, or Port Aransas. That's a cool area. I fished one redfish yeah. tournament down there. It reminded me a lot of, uh, beachy kind of places like South Carolina and other places that, and, and good fishing there too. Okay. So the real easy question is you've got a 35 pound limit on your luggage. You're going to anywhere. It could be Christmas Island. It could be the Seychelles. It could be Norway. What do you? What are the essentials that you're going to put in that 35 pound bag? Okay, so uh, the, this is pretty easy because it's always the same amount that we have in the Seychelles, and we've actually minimized it a little bit even more. But basically, in my bag, I've got two flat shirts, one dress shirt, uh, two flat pants, uh, two uh, um, uh, tights, lycra uh, spandex. Mm-hmm. Um, wading boots, uh, wading socks. Um, the wading boots, the the socks are neoprene, so it's, so uh, you can reuse it. Um, then, uh, yeah, dre- one dress shirt, uh, one dress pants. Um, if if it's the Seychelles, usually have four reels. 
um, with each uh, nine, nine weight, 10 weight, 11 weight, and 12 weight, all with floating lines on and all with one backup line. The 12 weight, I'll usually have two backup lines. Um, leader material, uh, the different flies, you two or three fly boxes, um, uh, always uh, two buffs, uh, and then a, some, a selection of caps and two pairs of sunglasses, one low light, one normal green mirror. Um, boots, that's top to bottom. Sunscreen, a lot of it. Rehydrate, uh, uh, just something with electrolytes. Um, and uh, that's usually almost it. That usually that usually evens it out almost. Depending on what reels you have, they in, end up being close to the 35-pound range. Yeah. I usually sneak in some snacks because they used to call me the cookie monster when I was guiding, <laughs> so I always had chocolate or biltong. I don't know if you've had biltong. I don't know it's what that South is. African, it's a South African beef jerky. I promise you it is so good. It's very addictive. It's it's a lot more natural. It doesn't have a lot of sweetened, sweetened is stuff. Is it made it's, out of uh, beef or is it, a, uh, is it another animal? So usually out of beef, but we do kudu and all sorts of game with it, yeah. venison stuff too. So it is, it is pretty tasty. You can do it with different kinds of uh, meat too, but it's just more natural. It gets, you overnight it in a, in a vinegar and then you just literally a fan with uh, cold air just blowing oh. on it and it dries it out. So it's how thick are the very, pieces like a, like a piece of bacon or something? Oh no. So, so it is pretty thick and you end up, it's crazy how quickly it dries. And then you just cut it up in slices and you usually cut it up in thin slivers. So you can have a pretty big piece of meat, like, like a pound of it, like a just thin, let's say a sirloin and just a long piece of meat and you just dry it out and it, 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 it dries out pretty quickly and mm. it's all natural. So it's, but it's very good. You have to kind of have this right spices. So at some point I'll get you some real biltong. Yeah. But that, that and chocolate was always in my bags where I go. So that's just, <laughs> Cause you know, like, I mean, when I, my first, I used to call guiding fat camp cause that's where I always lost weight. Cause usually there's no, like, uh, in the Seychelles, we had this beautiful delicacy. We call the hand grenade chicken where it looks like they took a pot through a chicken and it threw a hand grenade, put the lid on it. <laughs> and then they just, they give you that. Um, so yeah, we had some interesting meals. So that's just to back up some snacks. What do you do about intestinal issues? Like you, in a lot of these places, you got bad water or water. It might be fine for the natives or, or the locals, but for, you know, me and you going there, not used to it, it can be really, really bad and ruin your trip. Um, what do you do? Are you careful about that? Yeah. So there's usually a, a, a medical kit that goes with that always has some kind of emodium or something for, for your stomach. Honestly, like with myself and some of the friends that I've guided with, um, I think we've got such crazy stuff in our systems by now that it's, it's kind of just any, it, it can take a pretty good beating. Um, I mean, for example, I've got guys that guide in Africa in Cameroon on a trip that I went to recently. And the, the one day the guy was sitting next to me, sweating, Greg, Greg Gowie, and he, he just, he just didn't look good. And the dude was guiding with malaria. Oh. So those guys get malaria several times a season and they've got this super drug that they take that just makes them sweat it out within three days. But you know, like some guides complain about bad weather guiding. These guys are guiding with malaria. People are getting scared of getting malaria. These guys are guiding with it. Malaria, crocodiles, sharks. It all goes. It all goes. Hippos, the whole lot. It's crazy. I mean, those guys are so badass. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. So then my final question would be, um, since you've been to all these different places, you caught all these different fish, you've guided, you've, you've shot films there, you've captured some amazing things. If you could pick one 
I want you to tell me what that would be, where, what time of day, what the tide's doing. I don't know what time of what season. What would you choose if you could do if you could go back and re redo one thing that you thought was like this is it like this to me this is the situation the scenario the fish whatever what would it be um, with a fish that i that i can possibly catch or like just the whole scenario the just whole the whole scenario deal. i mean you don't even have to catch one i mean sometimes it's sitting on the riverbank looking at it and watching the river go by and you're like <laughs> man this is what my whole life's about right here <laughs> Um, you know, the funny thing is, is so that, that whole clip and it's been played so many times that again, we kind of took it for granted is when we were on this Siberia trip. And I mean, like I said, we went days without catching anything and we found a confluence up against the main river against the, that's the river's called the Olanyok. And it was like the most time and that you could have possibly seen in your entire life in one spot. And the funny thing is, is so there was this shot that we filmed where, the timing was there and we kind of like swung the fly. But before that whole scenario happened, we knew that there was like a shallow edge and then it dropped off in the deeper water. And we saw some of these timings sitting on the edges and we put the drone up. And I said to Keith that if we can get that timing to eat the fly on the shallow water and then land it and do all that kind of stuff, this would be absolutely perfect. We put the drone up. There was five minutes left on the battery. Um, I walked in, swung the fly. Keith said, okay, the thing's coming. This thing's coming. Eventually, I saw it coming in behind me. And I just pushed the fly back. And I drew it up one long time. And it came up on the bank, ate the fly, shot off. And it was the biggest time in that I've landed so far. It was like the most idyllic situation. We proceeded to catch another, I don't know how many time in that day. Um, it was just such a crazy scenario that it's those moments that you work so hard for. And it just kind of happens all in such a quick time. And you just kind of have to eventually sit and kind of just recoup that scenario. It's very tough because the saltwater, all the saltwater situations and scenarios that play out, especially with GTs, it's, it's, it's kind of, there's so many crazy moments that stand out. Sorry, I have to say one more. Sorry, one yeah, more. I think whatever. one that's, I think one that will probably stand out the, the, the best scenario, I think possibly in saltwater was when we initially found those GTs eating the birds. I think that the, how that whole thing played out, we were working on our boats. So this is how a season starts when you guide in the Seychelles. We go there, all four of our boats are completely broken. Engines need to be redone. The steering columns are seized up. So we've got clients with us that wants to fish with us the next day. We basically get two boats running and we explain to the clients the scenario. We haven't slept a single, single minute. We go out with the clients, we get to this island and the first thing we see, see is these blow-ups, just these explosions. We saw it was GTs, but we weren't understanding what they were doing. And eventually, like, I, I remember this thing, the clearest as day, we were floating with a skiff, uh, with a boat, uh, just through this lagoon where it all happens. And I had a GT basically breach the water, full breach. I mean, it was three feet away from the boat, up in the air, probably like six foot in the air, and grabbed the bird <laughs> in front of me and just went straight down. I was like, holy moly and just that whole thing how it planned out and the gts that we saw and the behavior that we saw and how intelligent they are was i mean it'll stand out forever for sure that was spectacular and then obviously bbc managed to catch it perfectly and it's it's crazy it's uh, yeah it just shows you how these these and the way that the gts pick out the younger birds there's just some element of of just understanding evolution and how smart these fish are how they can pick out one bird out of 
thousands of birds, that's going to be the one that they take. It's crazy. It's, it's wow. super cool. That is, yeah. that is super cool. That, that little clip is probably one of my favorite outdoor wildlife clips that I've ever seen from yeah. anywhere, from anything, eating anything, from any kind of craziness. Just those, those GTs eating those birds is, that's one of the coolest things ever. And it was, I think it was three or four years in the making. Because the first time I spoke to them was, yeah, probably four years before they, uh, uh, three years before they went on the initial shoot. It's, yeah, to make that two and a half, whatever minute clip, it was, it took a long time. Mm -hmm. All right. Okay. Since you had one more, I've got one more. All right. You got the Seychelles, <laughs> you got Norway, Gabon, Suriname, Bolivia, Africa, Mongolia, Bahamas, Florida Keys, Texas, uh, South Africa. Africa, probably Australia. I don't know what else. I'm uh, Siberia. Um, all these different places, all these different fish that are all quite different. I mean, you got some similarities in the Bahamas and the Seychelles, you know, maybe, but for the most part, very, very different things. What would you say is the one thing that is similar about all the areas that you've been? Um. The, the the similarities of them, and I think that that's something that I learned very quickly on in uh, in in fishing is is that um, is if you're gonna fish any area in the world, you gotta understand your target of species and you gotta understand water. I think the key element with any fish fishery that you go to is you need to understand how the water moves, how the fish moves with the food, how everything, the whole chain of events come together to that point where you're casting a fly and getting an eat from a fish. Um, it's just, it's just, I mean, it could be worlds apart, but you can maybe potentially have uh, a fish sitting in a possible lie or a fish sitting like the way. So two similarities. So you, you take the Seychelles, Astove Island, where we were catching GTs in a river scenario where you think, it would be a trout river in Montana. They would be sitting in this fast current holding behind a rock. Then you go to the jungles of Costa Rica where we were fishing for tarpon, sitting at 150-pound tarpon, sitting behind a little lie of a branch, just feeding on little bait fish, feeding on little bait fish. It, and these are completely different fish. Yeah. But the thing is, is, is that they were driven by where they could easily feed, what the water temperature... One thing I'm a big believer in is water temperature also, which obviously... Uh, has got something to do with the whole chain of events with the food and everything. But um, I mean, a thing that you can always see is like a thermocline where you've got tuna on this side and you've got nothing on this side. It's just, just knowing the water and knowing what the fish is comfortable with and food and everything. Um, it all comes together. It doesn't matter where you are. You have to understand it. And for me, it doesn't matter where you go in the world. If you're fishing for a two inch brook trout, Make sure that you enjoy it as much as catching a 200-pound tarpon. Just nice. enjoy every moment you're in. You can't, you can't really say, oh, this sucks because this is not like that or this is not like that. It's all good. Yeah, nice. I love it, man. I love it. Well, as I said in the very beginning, you're a savage. You are a beast. <laughs> you. You're doing some really cool stuff, and I'm glad to have you in the United States uh, doing some cool stuff here in Texas. And I truly hope that we can share a boat one day. Um, that would be amazing. So be awesome. thank you so much for your time. This has been a long one and a good one. Um, and uh, that's it, man. Thanks. Thank you so much, Tom. I really appreciate oh, your time. Tell, tell people how, you, how they can go fishing with you and how they can follow you and watch your films and everything you got going on. 
Oh, um, so I mean, the easiest way would be usually email because I can answer emails late at night and all, oh, well, messages everywhere. So you can email me on yaku at captainjackproductions.com or on my Instagram. I, I sometimes am a little bit late on replying on those messages, but um, Captain Jack uh, Productions, I think, is the handle for Instagram. Um, Facebook Messenger on Captain Jack Productions or my personal one. Um, I usually try and get to all my messages. Sometimes it's a little bit longer when I'm guiding, but I'll get to them. So uh, yeah, feel free. And if any, if I can help anybody with anything, just let me know. I'm always okay. happy to. And you got new film coming out, right? The newest one is, we, is that Relentless Pursuit? The Relentless Pursuit, the one that's up this year. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's just kind of, it's, it's, it's basically just fish porn deluxe just from <laughs> all sorts of places. That's all it is. There's no storyline. There's a, uh, it's just fish, fishy stuff. Um, but the next one we'll do, we're going to be working really hard on is the Jack one. So okay. hopefully people enjoy it. Do you have a place where somebody could go watch all of your films or how would they watch your films? Um, I've got most of my films on Vimeo on demand. Um, and if it's not there, I'm always happy to send it to them. Um, uh, just uh, uh, Dropbox links and stuff to download. Um, it's just been hard with the piracy and stuff that happened that I sometimes have a little bit of like some of them would cost something that you have to buy, but I always happy to give them out for free. If uh, people just reach out to me, if there's something that's not up to, um, so my Vimeo on demand, or you can just email me. I'll send you some videos. Okay. All right. That's Yaku Lucas. He's a beast. Thank Go you. Go check him out. All right. Thanks guys. We'll see you next week. On Mondays, head offshore with Captain Scott Walker and Steve Roger for breathtaking deep sea adventures. Coming to me, coming to me, coming to me. Double. He's jumping, he's jumping, he's jumping. Oh! oh. Look at that Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue, brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern. Tell a few fish stories along the way. On Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6'8 Western. Oh, I'm ill there, baby. Right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.